best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth Indianapolis 500. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Dwayne Sweeney waves the white flag. One to go. A three-car length separation between Unser and Goodyear. And that's Holy Kung through number one. The gap gets closer and closer and closer in front of Gary Lee. Indeed, about three or four car lengths as they work off the second corner for the last time. Headed down the back stretch. Headed right at you, Larry Henry. Scott Goodyear, Chuck right in behind Al Lancer Jr. He's waiting. He's waiting about a car length and a half behind Al Jr. Al Jr. now lengthens it out. He's trying to hold him up. Goodyear low. Junior high. They go to four, Bob Levy. Al Lancer Jr. has the lead. One more turn to go. Here they come. Coming to the finish line. Bob Jenkins, who's going to win it? The checkered flag is out. Goodyear makes a move. Little Al wins by just a few tenths of a second. Perhaps the closest finish in the history of the Indianapolis 500. Al Unser Jr. has become the first second-generation driver to win an Indianapolis 500. Al Unser Jr. has done it. Holding off the challenge of Scott Goodyear. With the words from Bob Jenkins just after that, the late Bob Jenkins, the great. And what is undoubtedly the greatest moment, the greatest lap call in the history, in my opinion, of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Radio Network. Good evening to you. This is Beyond the Bricks here on 93.5, 107.5 The Fan. Thanks for joining us. My name is Jake Query. Mike Thompson is here as well. And, Mike, this is a program tonight that I'm excited for because we all have our favorite drivers of yesteryear. The Indianapolis 500-mile race is an event that I think for so many people is nostalgic towards childhood. And as you know, because you were oh so kind enough to once give me a press kit from his rookie year, my favorite driver when I was a kid going to the race in the Southeast Vista with my dad was none other than the subject of tonight's broadcast, Alan Sir Jr. You are a fan of the Coors Light Silver Bullet, my friend, <laughs> just as I was. And as I told us, I think I relayed this on the show last year, I, I got sent home from school one day for wearing the Coors Light Silver Bullet colors at uh, Washington Junior High School, which was frowned upon uh, at the time. I was not allowed to do that. But yes, a big fan of Al Jr. as well and, and the Coors Light Silver Bullet. So we definitely have that in common. Al Unser Jr. once told me, by the way, folks, interestingly enough, that the first Indianapolis 500 he attended. Mike Thompson, I'm going to put you on the spot with a trivia question. Would you like to guess the year of the first Indianapolis 500 that Al Unser Jr. attended? That he attended in person? Correct. Oh, I would probably guess that he was probably – it sounds like this is going to be a trick question. So maybe was it the first uh, time he was in the race? That is correct. Alonzo Jr. Go. once told me that the first year – you know, he would come every year for practice, obviously, to watch his dad and his uncle. And, you know, he told me – I know that Alonzo Jr. would go – he would walk – and to turn number one, if you walk down the main straight at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway to the south end of Pit Road, up there in the corner, when you see the cars going in the corner, his dad would walk him over there and tell him to listen to cars so he could get a sense of when drivers were lifting. But each year, he had to go back to Albuquerque to finish the school year, and as a result, 
or had other things going on, and as a result, couldn't come for the actual race itself. And the first year that he was here for the race was in 1983 when Little Al, as he was known, probably still is for that matter, qualified well in the middle uh, of row number two, finished 10th because he ran out of fuel on lap 192. Then in 1984, he had an issue with his water pump. But it was 1985 when things really got interesting, Mike, and I'm not talking necessarily about the Indianapolis 500 where he finished um, in the fifth or 25th position, but rather the 1985 Cart Championship because it became a family affair and one that I think captivated the entire country watching between Alancer Sr. and Alancer Jr. Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories. We talked about this when we talked about Big Al. I love this story. I mean, Big Al was subbing for Rick Mears, who was, you know, had re- being, uh, you know, re- rehabilitating his feet that he had injured at San Air in Canada. And Big Al was was substituting for him. And Big Al had, a, you know, a chance to win the championship in 1985. And so did Little Al. They were the only two drivers who had an opportunity to win the championship. And, you know, can you imagine the dynamic in that house talking the, the two of them talking you know maybe before the race uh, about that and and just the rivalry between the two you know one was it was it rivalry of one upmanship or was it just you know was it just i i really want to see my son win and that's kind of how al senior felt al senior really kind of wanted uh you know he wanted his son to he you know feel what he had felt as a champion Al, Al Sr. had been a champion and knew what it felt. In fact, he had been a champion just two years earlier. Al Sr. was the 1983 cart champion. And so uh, by that point, uh, you know, in the race, as we'll find out here in a second with some audio, Al Sr. had a choice to make as a driver. He, he could have uh, not passed Roberto Moreno. And if he doesn't pass Roberto Moreno, Al Jr. would be the champion of cart that year. But Al Sr. is a is a professional race car driver with a job to do, and so he he did it, and so uh, he becomes the champion of 1985. But you're right; it was a it was a captivating championship. And that final race where the Bert, Roberto Moreno pass took place was kind of the capper to where the two drivers, Alancer Sr. and Alancer Jr., had gone back and forth in the final two races with that points lead. As a matter of fact, with two races to go, two races to go, little Al had a three point lead. They finished first and second in Phoenix with Al Sr. finishing first and Al Jr. finishing second. So, therefore, the standings were flip-flopped. Al Sr. led Little Al by three points going into the finale at Miami. And as we talked about, as you just mentioned, it went back and forth over the course of the race. In the end, as Mike mentioned, the 1985 season champion was Al Unser Sr. And falling short was Al Unser Jr., here is how Al Jr. remembers that 85 battle. Well, in, in 1985, when Dad and I came down to the championship, uh, it came down to the final race, we knew going into the race that, that it was either him or I that was going to win the championship. So so an Unser was going to take home the, the 85 IndyCar championship. And, you know, Dad driving for Roger Penske and, and, and I was driving for Doug Shearson in the Domino's Pizza car. 
you know we we each wanted to uh to do the best we could for our team um you know unfortunately um for me you know dad had had one car to pass at the end of the race to to win the championship and and of course he did it he's you know he's uh he's a professional and and uh, and that sort of thing and you know, quite honestly, I tease him when 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 I see that trophy in his house. I go, you know, that's my trophy, and he goes, no, if it was you, it it would be in your house. So we, we laugh about it today. They laugh about it today. Of course, that audio before we tragically lost uh, Alan Sir Senior, but something that so true to uh, I think the Unser spirit, the fact that both of them knew that it came down to simply racing and trying to get the win but Alan Sir Sr. before his passing talked about that 85 championship as well here's how the father recalls it when I came in and I said to myself under the, the cool down lap you know before I got in the in the pits I says well I could have given that race to Al because I know how hard championships are to win and to give you know, it would have been easy to give Al that that championship. And I, you know, I said to myself then, I says, well, I hope that I haven't taken something from him that he'll never enjoy. And thank goodness later on he won the, you know, his championship in, in IndyCar. So it won Indy and in, in the championship. So, you know, I can look back now and say that I definitely did the right thing. And I think I did the right thing that day because, you know, I had to face my crew and I had to face the sponsors. And if it would have ever, you know, I don't think I could have ever kept it a secret that if I'd have given that race to Al, somebody would have known it. And so it came to be that Al Unser Sr. was the season champion, and perhaps that even further fueled the fire for Al Unser Jr., not just to win a season points championship, but to win the ultimate prize. And I think we all know what that is. It became a story for Al Unser Jr. of conquest, and then a story of chasing that conquest and allowing it to continue. But circumstances, politics, and at times, surprise qualifying shortcomings all came into play in the journey of Alan Sir Jr. We'll take a look back at all of it as we continue on this episode on 93.5 and 107.5, the fan of Beyond the Bricks. Jay Query, Mike Thompson, Sam Rumsa is our producer, Eddie Garrison as well. This is Beyond the Bricks. You're listening to it on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Mike, I want to real quickly point out, because I think it's important for us to do so from time to time, I am so thrilled that people seemingly enjoy this show, clearly not because of me or you, but rather because of the fabulous audio that you have archived and make accessible to us. But nonetheless, I want to occasionally reiterate over the course of the month when we are doing this program that it is not lost on the two of us of the incredible privilege that we have in doing it, the fun that we have in doing it, and the fact that just like those who are kind enough to lend us their ear, we're just race fans that love talking about this stuff. Absolutely, and and we know basically they're, they're not tuning in to listen to me talk. <laughs> so, or me. No. 
<laughs> no, I'm just, I have a lot of fun doing this with you and, and I, I'm really privileged to have the opportunity to do it. And, and I really enjoy uh, that so many people respond to the, the audio that we pick to play on the show. So I really have a good time and, and I really appreciate everyone who enjoys the show. So uh, really thankful to have the opportunity to do it. Tonight we're talking about Alan Jr. And before the break, you heard us talking about that epic 1985 battle in terms of the points championship. But for little Al, who has lined at his house in Albuquerque along his driveway, for example, part of a wall of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, a wall that he knows all so well as we're about to talk about the pursuit really became when you are an unser that battle to try to win the indianapolis 500 he saw his father win it four times his uncle win it three times so the pressure from the very beginning was on little al and then we turned to 1989 where he had that valvoline lola chevrolet and was running right up towards the front as a matter of fact he had qualified in that race in the eighth position but found his way up to the front the battle became epic with Emerson Fittipaldi, who, as we will hear from, he continued a history with well beyond 1989. But the two of them were battling, and all of you know what happened, towards the win. And it's little Al who has always said, there comes a time in every race where winning is the only thing that matters. And as they came within the final five miles of the Indianapolis 500-mile race, Allenser Jr. and Emerson Fittipaldi went into turn number three, and this is how it sounded. They're side by side, ammo on the inside, Al Connor traffic, goes high, they touch wheels, oh. Al Jr. into the wall hard, Emerson Fittipaldi keeps on going, they touch wheels, Al Jr. into the wall, and Emerson Fittipaldi will lead them back to the yellow flag. That is Larry Henry on the call with the IMS Radio Network, and that's how it ended as Little Al and Mike. I think the thing that people remember the most was not only that Emerson Fittipaldi went on to get the win in his Marlboro Penske Chevrolet, but as they came around under the yellow and white flag and Little Al was there, people wondered what was going to happen. And you had to know the disappointment, the heartache, the frustration within Allenser Jr., but it was not the salute that many anticipated he was going to give when the cars came past. Right. And if you've ever talked to Al Jr. about that, it actually was going to be that finger originally. <laughs> he uh, he originally planned to give a much different gesture than he gave. Um, but he thought about it while he was waiting for Emerson to come around. And then he gave a very sportsmanlike thumbs up. But uh, it could have been a much different gesture if he would have given the original one he had in mind. But but he thought about it and thought, you know what? This is two guys going for the same space and the same part of the racetrack. And he was friends with Emerson. I mean, he was very close to Emerson at that time. And then, you know, he thought better of it and thought, you know what? Um, I'm going to give him the thumbs up and say, you know, great job. You're, you're about to become a 500-mile race uh, champion, and, and I'll have my day, and, and he would. And he would go on to finish fourth in the next two years, in 1990 and 1991. But perhaps for Alan Sir Jr. in 1992, the old lady finally decided to pick him, perhaps because of the sportsmanlike nature in which he handled 1989. The story, of course, is well told and well known by now, but it bears repeating. Michael Andretti was so dominant in that 1992 Indianapolis 500-mile race at the outset of the race, he got out to a lead after Roberto Guerrero, the pole sitter, had dropped out. Eddie Cheever was the de facto pole sitter. 
and Michael and Mario went either side of Eddie Cheever. And, of course, that was when ABC said, you know, this could be the biggest lead that a driver could enjoy after the first lap the way that Michael Andretti was running away. He was oh so dominant was Michael Andretti that day. But despite leading nine times for 160 laps, 160 laps that Michael Andretti led, unfortunately for Michael, it wasn't his day because he slowed down in the backstretch, setting up what we heard to begin this program, but it's worth listening to again. Allenser Jr., who had quietly been running and passed Scott Goodyear earlier when Michael was so far out front to take second with Scott Goodyear running third, and it set up a showdown that is one that still I think I speak for all Indy 500 fans and saying is so darn good it's worth listening to a second time within 20 minutes. Dwayne Sweeney waves the white flag. One to go. A three-car length separation between Unzer and Goodyear. And that's how they come through number one. The gap gets closer and closer and closer in front of Gary Lee. Indeed, about three or four car lengths as they work off the second quarter for the last time. Headed down the backstretch. Headed right at you, Larry Henry. Scott Goodyear tucked right in behind Al Unzer Jr. He's waiting. He's waiting about a car length and a half behind Al Jr. Al Jr. now lengthens it out. He's trying to hold him off. Goodyear low. Junior high. They go to four, Bob Laney. Al Unser Jr. has the lead. One more turn to go. Here they come. Coming to the finish line. Bob Jenkins, who's going to win it? The checkered flag is out. Goodyear makes a move. Little Al wins by just a few tenths of a second. Perhaps the closest finish in the history of the Indianapolis 500. Al Unser Jr. has become the first second-generation driver to win an Indianapolis 500. Al Unser Jr has done it and as you can hear the incredulous nature in bob jenkins voice not only because of the dramatic way in which that race finished but because of the fact that it seemingly came out of nowhere because it was so sure to be michael andretti's day as a matter of fact here's donald davidson the track historian emeritus of the indianapolis motor speedway talking about alancer jr's seemingly slim chance until the late running but what an unusual scenario because Al Unser Jr. told me um, it wasn't too long after that, but it wasn't, you know, in the in the days or weeks of follow sometime after. He said, I went to the track that morning. I said, is it true that, that Rick Gallus uh, told you guys in the motorhome that morning we're scrapping the Galma program? And he said, yes. He said, but we had already decided that this wasn't a car that could win. And he said, this was the first time in my career that I'd gone to the track on race morning thinking, we're not going to win this. And he said, our strategy was, look, we don't know what we're going to get out of this. Seventh, eighth, fifth, whatever we get, we get. We'll just keep running as long as we can. Whatever we get, we get. And he said, it never occurred to me that I could win. That's Donald Davidson talking about it. And I remember, Mike, remember when Little Al said, boy, all day we thought we were just going to have to go with best in class. And then it fell right into his lap. That's right. It's just uh, and, and kind of the way, you know, Al Sr. won in 87. You know, you just you just keep plugging away at it and, and stay on the lead lap all day. And, and there were so many, obviously, so many accidents that day with it being so cold. And, and you've got to just be there at the end. And, and lessons learned from his father who finished third that day in the Buick, the only driver to, to have that, that kind of a result in the Buick. So, you know, obviously a fabulous day for Al Jr. Al Unser Jr., let's get his thoughts, his recollection, his memory and look back 
1992. We had been trimming the car out. We had been taking wing out of it because uh, because we needed to get quicker down the straightaways. And, and so on my last pit stop, I went just a little bit too far with the rear wing. And, uh, and so as the run went on there at the end of the race with Scott Goodyear, my car got looser and looser, which the back end would slide out on me. And, and uh, it finally slid a little too much getting into turn four for the checkered. Um, I had to breathe the throttle just a tiny bit. Uh, coming off of the corner, uh, I looked in my mirror. I saw the run that Scott had on me. And, and my first thoughts was, oh, no, I've blown another one, you know. Um, and But... You know, we uh, somehow we made it to the, the finish line first. You know, it's interesting, Mike, in talking over the years about that with Michael Andretti. Michael Andretti was so dominant in that race, and it was late in the race when he passed a car, and he smelled something. And the car that he passed was a Buick. And in those days, Buicks were known for going fast. They were not known for going far. And he thought to himself, well, another one of those Buicks just blew an engine. And then within a couple laps, he realized the smell was not the Buick, but it was his own car, Michael Andretti's. That Buick was Allenser Sr. Allenser Jr. inherited the lead. And what it turned into, Mike, was not only a fabulous finish, but as we saw in Victory Lane, one of the more emotional finishes in the history of the Indy 500. Yeah, because I think it's exactly what you said. Um, I've always been fascinated with the, the the people who are, you know, a junior, Ken Griffey Jr., Al Unser Jr., uh, you know, Kyle Petty, you know, people who are following in a famous father's footsteps who, you know, have had that father's had so much incredible success and the, that pressure that's on them to succeed. And, and you touched on this earlier. You know, at that point, the Unser's had seven victories in the in the family. Al had four. Bobby had three. And the, the incredible pressure that's on Al Jr. And and Al had confided in Paul Page. You know, I maybe my best chances to win the 500 have already, you know, gone by. And I, I've had those. And I mean, I think of a lot about Marco Andretti. You know, Marco had such a great opportunity in his first year to win mm-hmm. and and maybe never gets another chance to win. You know, and and so that's what I think the the emotions came out in Al Jr. at the end there. And, of course, it was the famous moment when as he's in victory lane and they, they brought little, you know, Al Unser the third in, you know, all right, Al. You know, Al Unser Jr. picks his son up and his wife comes in and gives him a hug. And, and as the interview is being done with Jack Aroot, Jack Aroot says, it sounds like there's some tears in your voice. And, of course, that led Al Unser Jr., to say what is probably most race fans' famous quote ever uttered at 16th at Georgetown. Well, <laughs> you just don't know what Indy means. And he had the tears in his voice when he said it. Here's Alancer Jr. on that quote. Well, when, when we were in victory lane with, with Jack Aroot and, and uh, we were doing the the interview there in, in, uh, in victory lane, uh, he asked me a question about, you know, w- what was it like to uh, to finally get here and uh, uh, into victory lane at Indy? And, and you know, it was just a, a spontaneous thing, you know, uh, because everything flashed back, you know, my dad winning it as many times as he did and Uncle Bobby. And I just it was it was too long of an answer to go into. So I just, you know, it just came to me 
you just don't know what indie means, and that summed it all up for me. Al Unser Jr. had that indie win. Question then became, when you're an Unser, Mike, the reality, one isn't good enough, right? Got to become a multiple right. winner. That's Thus right. began the pursuit for wins number two, maybe three. There's a lot that went into that. We'll get into not only what kept him out of some races, but also what kept him bumped from some races and some domination as well. When we continue talking about Allen Jr. on this installment of Beyond the Bricks, 93.5, 107.5, The Fan. Jake Query, Mike Thompson, Sam Rumsa running the board for us as the producer, Eddie Garrison assisting. It is Beyond the Bricks here on 93.5, 107.5, The Fan. It is May in Indianapolis. How are you? Talking today about one of those adopted sons, if you will, that comes to the Circle City by way of Albuquerque, New Mexico, Al Unser Jr., you heard us talking about the fact he broke through in 1992, and then I will never forget, Mike, my good buddy Ryan Carr, who is now, by the way, the director of player personnel for the Indiana Pacers, went to Indiana University with me. He's a native of Washington State. He had never been to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, so one day in the month of May in 1994, we decided to make the trip up from Bloomington. Walked in. We were walking underneath the main straightaway, and I saw Scott Hoke of Channel 6. And the first thing he said to me, he said, you're not going to believe the speed trap speeds of the Penske Mercedes. It was known as the Beast. And Roger Penske in 1994, Mike, once again, had a trick up his sleeve. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there are still people to this day who uh, love talking about the Beast. Obviously, you got an outstanding book that Jade Gers wrote about the beast and, and actually another book he wrote with Al Jr. about Al Jr.'s career recently that I recommend as well. But uh, the beast was an incredible engine. If you'd never heard that thing go down the backstretch, you definitely missed out. You can tell if you listen to any audio of the 94 race. So go back and watch it on YouTube or if you hear the old radio broadcasts, you know, you hear the familiar sound of the cars and I know that people say this about cars of yesteryear, you know, when they came out, but the Marlboro Penske, the Mercedes-Benz Marlboro Penske, known as Beast, when it came through, just shoom. I mean, it sounded effortless. The other cars sounded like they were screaming for mercy, and the Mercedes did not. And Mike, without getting too nuanced into things that probably would – fatigue people by getting into the rules the reality is this and that is that when it came to the specifications of engine roger penske basically found what at the time was a somewhat controversial clause so to speak that allowed for some wiggle room for the mercedes to be able to be presented correct yeah, a lot of people describe it as a loophole. It really wasn't a loophole. It was in the rule book, and it, it was allowed that uh, you know the specifications were there if you wanted to create a push rod engine of this kind. It's just nobody did it until Roger Penske looked at it and, hey, we could do this. And obviously, I mean, that's the kind of person Roger Penske is. I mean, he just saw that it was in the rule book that you could do it, and and he went out and did it. And it was, it was an incredible engine. And uh, very rarely... Did you come to a race 
on the morning of the race and know that a specific car was going to win. Now, now obviously, the, uh, one of those was the Pennzoil Chaparral in 1980. I think everybody knew that unless that car broke, it was going to win the race. And one of the beasts was going to win. It may have been Emerson Fittipaldi. It may have been Allenser Jr. Uh, I don't think Paul Tracy was in the mix, but he had had a practice crash. And so he he wasn't as favored to win as Emerson Fittipaldi or Allenser Jr. were. But uh, I think everybody knew one of the beasts was going to win. And that car now sits kind of behind Cloak. I guess shouldn't say that. The Penske headquarters in North Carolina is where Beast is now. But it was really behind Curtin until it was presented in May in Indianapolis. Here's Allenser Jr. on his memories of the Beast. In 1994, when I was driving for Roger Penske, it was uh, he had a special car for the 500. He told me about it uh at the end of the 93 season when i first came on board with roger and and uh and he said it was top secret you couldn't tell anybody not even your wife and so i didn't and uh, uh the it was just such a special effort you know we were testing the car at at michigan and and it was freezing cold in in january and february um the engine would uh wouldn't make the 500 miles for whatever reasons they were sending engines back and forth because it was built over in england uh on the concord they were they were just using every means possible to uh to develop this uh this 209 mercedes and uh and it just happened that uh that opening day practice in in may I had my teammates Emerson and Paul Tracy here at Indianapolis while I was at Michigan uh, testing the, the, the engine. And on opening day, we finally, I finally went 500 miles at Michigan, which is the, was the first time we had accomplished that. And so, you know, it was cutting everything down to the wire for sure, and and there was there was a lot of nervous people, including Roger, including Mercedes, including us, uh, the, all the drivers, the team, but we finally made it live for 500 miles, and and um, and so um, you know, it, it was just the effort behind it was 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 unbelievable and we were able to uh put it all together in the 94 race and and uh, and bring it home now paul tracy by the way had started 25th in that race um and he actually had a turbo issue that or excuse me uh, yeah i started 25th finished 23rd turbo went out for him just past the 90 lap mark of the race but roll boy cell was the one that had the misfortune of starting in the front row flanked by the two penskis allenser jr on pole emerson fittipaldi on the outside of row number one but it was fittipaldi that dominated the race in 94 five times he led the race for 145 laps but it was late in the race when emerson fittipaldi was leading Allenser Jr. was running right in front of him, and Emerson was trying to put him a lap down. That's when all of a sudden the race completely changed in turn number four. 
Al Unzer Jr. has repassed his teammate, and so Al Unzer Jr. is back on the lead lap, but almost a full lap, and for a crash. Got Emerson Fittipaldi has hit the wall on oh. the inside, coming through four. That means Al Unzer pulling away, but Emmo, his teammate, hit the wall, coming through four, just down below us. He kept it going. It should be in the main straightaway. Unbelievable. The car comes to a stop just a few feet short of the start-finish line. Emmo raises his hands as if to say, I can't believe what has happened. We are 16 laps away from the finish of the 500, and Emerson Fittipaldi is sitting here with the car stalled in the middle of the racetrack without a rear wing. Bob Lamey on the call in turn number four. Bob Jenkins, the chief announcer, and Mike, it goes without saying, everybody, as Bob Jenkins said, watching that, just thought to themselves, I can't believe what I just saw. And as Alan Jr. said, you know, the marbles just all of a sudden up high. Emmo went just a little too high. And as Alan Jr. said, Mike, the old vacuum cleaner got him. Yeah, absolutely. It was a shocking moment because uh, you have to remember on that day, Emerson and Al Jr. led basically every lap of the race, I think, but it was like six or seven. The only other person who I think even led that day was Jack Belnev, who was a rookie that year, and he led uh, just a handful of laps. So, I mean, just to see Emerson go out in that way after dominating was a shocking situation. And so it's set up for an unser to do what unsers do, become a multiple winner at the Indianapolis 500. The checkered flag waves, and Al Unzer Jr. has won the 78th running of the Indianapolis 500. Al Unzer Jr. becomes a two-time winner of the Speed Classic on Memorial Day weekend in Indianapolis, Indiana. That's how it sounded on May 29th of 1994. Al Unzer Jr. becoming a two-time winner. Here is little Al on his thoughts and recollection of that unpredictable finish in a wild one that led to win number two well there at the end of the race racing with emerson in 94 um you know he had done a better job at getting his car working during practice and so it showed up on on race day um he was trying to put me a lap down uh which just by being behind me he was he had me a lap down and but uh but he was trying to pass me and and um uh, you know, he he made a, a little bit of a mistake, ended up crashing off at turn four, and and uh, and that pretty much gave me the victory right there. And and really, when we were uh, my dad and I, we were going around in the pace car uh, at the end of the race, and and uh, we came into turn four, and I showed my dad uh, that that's where Emerson hit. My dad's comments was, "It comes back to you at Indianapolis." everything does and so you know uh basically what he was meaning is is that's 1989 coming back to me in uh, in 94 and and so um you know that that's just the way it was it, it was just it was racing and and um you know we were blessed enough to go win the race now mike what's interesting about that you had an engine that was oh so dominant and so in 1994 I'm not going to say that from an engineering standpoint in terms of downforce setup, et cetera, that Penske overlooked some things. But in 1995, when they didn't have the engine domination, all of a sudden in what was one of the biggest shockers in Indy lore, the Penske's were, re- were left scrambling. 
Yeah, I mean, probably the most inexplicable thing that's ever happened in the history of the Indianapolis 500, I think, personally, because you would think that, first of all, you wouldn't think Penske would miss the show with all their cars. That that just wouldn't happen, right? But it did. Um, it just was a scramble the entire month. And then you would think, okay, if, if Penske does miss the show with their cars, they must be terrible everywhere and the whole season is a disaster and they're going to be 14th and 15th in the points. And it's just a bad year all around. Right. But no, I mean, the next week after they missed the show, Al jr. Second at Milwaukee, he finished second in the points that year. It just, it's just an anomaly that when you think about it and you really look, analyze it, it just makes no sense all the, all the time you look at it. It just, does, there's no explanation for it whatsoever. Robin Miller was with the Indianapolis star at the time later with racer.com. The late, great Robin Miller, who was oh so close in covering this story, his memories of the Roger Penske error of 1995. I think the cruelest, the cruelest day of, I ever watched was 95 bump day when Roger Penske missed the show. Eddie Cheever and I were sitting on a pit wall at 4.15. He keeps looking at his watch and he goes, it's 4.15. There's an hour. He goes, Roger Penske didn't have a car in the race yet. It was, uh, and that was the last, I mean, that was a... It wasn't a poll day crowd, but that was the last big crowd they had yes. prior to the split. It was bump day, and it was watching the Penske guys run back and forth to the garage and, and springs and shocks and change. And I mean, it was un- they'd never been in that situation before. They never had. And I was working at Channel 13 then, and Roger Penske was our analyst. And Dave Calabro says, "Go get him." So I went in the garage. And I said, "RP," I said, "Come out." And he came out and faced the music. And I always take my hat off to the guy. He didn't buy his way in the field. He said, "You know what? We weren't fast enough to make it. We'll watch on race day, and we'll be back next year." Pretty classy. When Ray Hall gave them their cars, they just said, "Just go run them." Well, the first thing they did, I think, took them to the bare rack and they put the Penske setup on them and slowed them down eight miles an hour. <laughs> Plus, Emerson had the race made, and right. RP yellow yeah. flagged him on Saturday. That's right. So there was a lot of circumstances, but they were never in that situation before. They never were ever in a last-second panic. And it's interesting when Roger Penske said, look, we'll be back next year. We'll get to that because some things changed. But first, let's hear from Allenster Jr., his memory on that fateful 1995. The 95 race when um, when we came back, Emerson, myself, and, and with Roger Penske, um, you know, not making the race was, was uh, – truly the most challenging adversity that I had ever been faced with and and uh, you know because we were so successful we're driving for the the best team in the business and and uh, and we just couldn't put it together as a team and and uh, and it really showed you know there was there was one time there during qualifying that I was in a different car I was in a Lola it was a, a team car from from Bobby Rahal that that Roger had purchased and we were running fast enough to make the show and the engine blew uh, there was just things that was just going on that year that that were totally out of our control that uh, uh, that caused us to miss the show and and like I said it was it was the biggest challenge of adversity and and but we learned from it and um, and we went on and and so uh, you know that was it was just one of those things speaking of things beyond your control it was the prime of Allenser Jr. then, even though they missed the race in 95, as Mike had talked about, didn't mean that they were off pace for the season. And then the open-wheel racing split took place. And Allenser Jr., of course, was with 
Roger Penske's team, which was not at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in 96, 97, 98, in the prime of Alan Jr. If you look at Alan Jr.'s racing record in Indianapolis prior to the split, he had nine races in which he had finished in the top ten. But he came back eventually, but in his final seven starts, only finished in the top ten once. Mike... The conversation about the open-wheel racing split, the start of the IRL, those that stayed in cart, Roger Penske staying away, of course, until 2001, that could probably be another show that we could do in its entirety, probably month-long for that matter. But it really is, when you look at it, unfortunate for the sake of Allinger Jr., who I saw walking around in one of those races on race morning fulfilling a sponsor obligation, strangely enough, and you could tell how much it hurt him to not be there, and it really did probably rob him of his prime years and opportunity to get another one. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it robbed us of seeing Alex Zanardi. It's robbed us of seeing Greg Moore. It robbed uh, Michael Andretti of a number of opportunities and robbed Alan Jr. of a number of more opportunities. But what I would be interested to, if I would have told you, if you and I would have been standing in victory lane in 1994, where Alan Sir Jr. was, and I would have said to you, hey, Jake, um, I'm, I have the future. I already know what the future is, and Alan Sir Jr. will only lead one more lap at the Indianapolis 500 in the rest of his career. What would you have said to me? Then? Yeah, I would have said it, it literally impossible, right? Literally impossible. Yeah, and that's what ended up happening. He led one more lap in his Indianapolis 500 career after that. And in addition to that, not just, you know, and listen, it wasn't that he wasn't in cars that couldn't make it the distance. He just was never as in as competitive a ride when he returned, of course, in 2000, had an accident in 2001, and then he was running at the end in 02, 03, 04. Of course, that was rain shortened, had an accident in 06, and then ran again in 2007. But when you look at it, Mike, in the final minute here, you know, there are just certain names that have made the Indianapolis Motor Speedway what it is, but also the Indianapolis Motor Speedway made the names what they are. And I don't know that any name from a familial standpoint certainly resonates more when it comes to those who have gotten in the car than the Unser name. And in terms of just the reverence for the track itself and the ability to drive different cars, go at different speeds, win different ways Alan Jr. as good as it got absolutely I mean one of the absolute greats of all time and you know the fact that he you know he starred in so many different ways and and gave us so many outstanding moments over the years uh somebody that I'm, I'm glad we had the chance to honor tonight another one of those drivers too Alan Jr. when you look at it you know obviously the difficulty and the challenge in the last year um, the sympathies and the condolences still to the fact that Alan Jr. now will experience the month of May without his father and without his uncle for the first time. And obviously, it is one of those things that can't be easy for him. But when he comes to the Speedway, he always has time to stop and talk with a fan. And perhaps that's simply because when he's there, Alan Jr. is indeed home away from home. It's been our pleasure over the last month or so to bring you Beyond the Bricks, the stories, the audio, the commercials, all of the fun that goes into the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. We know what a special venue it is, and we know what a special event it is when you get ready to watch and listen to the greatest spectacle in racing. It is the interest of all of you that make all of it exactly that. And now the 106th running is upon us. So... 
for our producer, Sam Rumson, for Mike Thompson, who joins me on this program, for Sam Fritz and for Eddie Garrison, who have helped out as well. My name is Jake Query. It's been our pleasure. Enjoy the weekend and the 106th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race.